what we're also not taught is that we were masters of agriculture, right? And over the, the, the greater part of the last hundred years, that has slowly but surely been chipped away. And you now look at our food system. We own 1%, uh, maybe less than 1% of the farmland. We don't really own any of the supply chains uh, that lead back into our communities. Our communities are full of food deserts. Uh, and so for me, when you look at indoor farming, I don't think it's the savior of the food system, but I think it's a catalyst for change, right? And I think the real innovation behind indoor farming is that it gives you the ability to grow and create access to food where it didn't exist before. Welcome to Off the Top, where Black excellence dwells. Yes, beautiful people, we are back. And for 2023, we are starting off with a new kind of growth. Strap in, listen, learn, and connect to Mr. George L. Carter III. He is all things green. Okay, welcome to another episode of Ebony Tree Councils Off the Top, where we bring imagery and life to young people who are interested in exploring vast and different careers. We'd like to have them hear from successful people from our community and get some insights on what they need to do to make the adjustments on their own trajectory. And today I have the esteemed honor of sitting with Mr. George L. Carter III. How are you today, sir? I'm doing fantastic, Frederick. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's such a blessing. It's such a blessing. I, I guess I should, you know, let folks know that you know, we've had connections in technology and innovation in the hydroponics space. Uh, George is a CEO of Scout Strategy, and I'll let him explain a little bit more about what Scout Strategy is and, and what it does. Yeah, so Scout Strategy is a ag tech advisory firm, and we work with our customers to help them navigate to navigate the process of designing, building, and operating indoor farms. So we work with our customers really from kind of ideation and inception of their indoor farming project all the way through operation of their indoor farming project and everything between. Uh, and, a, and a lot of this idea and concept was born out of my time spent at Sanan Bio, which was a much larger uh, Chinese conglomerate that sold indoor farming equipment. And doing that for three years and having worked with people who were going through the journey of building an indoor farm, from that perspective, we were able to see how difficult it was to actually go through all of the different channels from beginning to end to get a farm off the ground. And so that was really the impetus behind starting Scout Strategy. We, we recognized that gap in the marketplace to really help consolidate and, and really streamline the process of building an indoor farm. So that really uh, is our focus. That's amazing, that's amazing. And, and if you could you know, share with us, what's the importance of our community really understanding what's happening in this space? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's so many layers to that, Frederick, right? And and I think when you look at just agriculture in general and the historical connection with African-Americans in agriculture in this country, um, it is one that is often marred by uh, slavery, right? And I think we all know the history of that. But what many people don't realize is that 
again, going back to, to the beginning times of agriculture in this country, a lot of Africans were brought to this country because of our knowledge of agriculture, right? And, and what we were able to do in West Africa. And if you look at a lot of the crops that are now grown in the South, those are all West African crop, crops, right? And so what we're also not taught is that we were masters of agriculture, right? And over the, the, the greater part of the last hundred years, that has slowly but surely been chipped away. And you now look at our food system, we own 1%, uh, maybe less than 1% of the farmland. We don't really own any of the supply chains uh, that lead back into our communities. Our communities are full of food deserts. Uh, and so for me, when you look at indoor farming, I don't think it's the savior of the food system, but I think it's a catalyst for change, right? And I think the real innovation behind indoor farming is that it gives you the ability to grow and create access to food where it didn't exist before, right? And so being able to use old parking lots, being able to use old building complexes where you haven't had any access to really any services and converting those into indoor farms and now creating access to food, uh, to me is, is the real power that we need to leverage in this space. Man, that's amazing. And, and it falls right along with, you know, at Ebony Tree Council, what we uh, believe is food is medicine. And we believe that, you know, it's all about what you ingest, whether it's food for your brain or food for your body, what you ingest is critical, you know, to your survival and, and your growth. And so we try to teach young folks to be really conscious and intentional about what they ingest in terms of the food we eat and the knowledge. But the space that you're talking about is important to us as well, because we are seeing here in the state of Georgia that the same entities that control the land and the ability to grow and produce, it's also the same entity that introduces you know, institutional systemic racism that prevent us from having the proper access to that stuff. And in fact, here in the state of Georgia, you know, black farmers over the last three years have dramatically increased from 9,000 farmers down to about 1,000 or so in three-year period of time. Wow. So yes, the rate of decline is continuing. Yes, it is. I mean, and again, when when... <laughs> You know, I mean, that, that's basically the foundation being pulled pulled out from under us, right? And going back to the food is medicine, food is wellness, that's that is that is true, right? And we we've never and have not been taught that in a very long time, or just like really the importance of healthy food, right? And I think so often the food that we do have available in our communities is overprocessed, it's full of sugar. Uh, and ultimately you then trickle down and see how those things affect the overall wellness of a community, right? You look at diet-related re diseases, you look at our community, most of that, that, that is the number one killer, heart disease in our communities. And all of that leads back to food, Frederick, right? And our diet and the lack of access to fresh food, right? And when you look at the nutritional value of collard greens, say, and you search it up and you actually look for it and you look at all of the health benefits that it gives you, preventative of cancer, <laughs> you know, antibacterial. I mean, all of these different things that build the foundational building blocks of, of our, our body, they're in our food, right? But yet we're told that they come in a pill bottle and, and that's how we stay healthy. And it's the exact opposite of that. And so again, cannot stress the importance of creating these new access points for access to fresh food in our communities. Absolutely, and, and, and while we're on the subject, I mean, just being transparent, uh, food systems are under attack. They are. Food systems are under attack. If you look in the underserved community, uh, typically 
80% of them are in a food desert or a food swamp. Yep. And a uh, food swamp was a new term that we learned uh, recently with one of our partners is that not only do you not have access to healthy food, what is available are the things that you mentioned earlier. And you know, you fought, you're talking about your, your, your local five and dimes, conveniences at a grocery store, you know, Dollar Tree, those type of things like that, that do yep. not provide healthy alternatives. And you see it in the health of those people. So you, yes, sir. And, and the reality is, right, I mean, food systems are under attack. And, and one thing that I've been focusing a lot on recently is the consolidation of grocery stores, right? And, and if you look at the statistics, uh, there was a, a report that was released last year. And from 1993 to 2019, we have lost 30% of the grocery stores in this country, right? And so that's mm -hmm. that's everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, you then kind of take those numbers and you look at that in our communities, that number is probably closer to 40 to 60% of the grocery stores in our communities are now gone, right? And the grocery industry is something that is continuing to be consolidated. And so you talk about our food system being under attack, you better believe it because guess what? Those grocery stores and those chains just continue to get bigger and bigger. Their purchasing power gets stronger and stronger. And regardless of the color of the farmer, they can go back to that farmer and say, you give it to us at this price and we're not buying any of it. And guess what? The bottom falls out from that farmer. Yeah. And so th that that's the reality of what is happening in our food system right now. But in all of that chaos, right, there will be opportunity that emerges. And, you know, we're talking about communities where this food, food infrastructure that is disappearing has never existed before, right? It hasn't existed in our communities before. And so to me, there, there lies the great opportunity, right? And we're not just talking indoor farms. We're talking food processing facilities. We're talking value-added kitchens. We're talking milling facilities, right? But then you also got to go back from that, from that food chain and who are the farmers that we're going to be getting these goods from, right? And so that also then creates the opportunity for the farmer class. And if you're saying, man, we lost, what, 8,000 more farmers, man, th th there's an opportunity for us to pick those back up. And, and Frederick, the work that we're talking about doing here isn't something that's going to happen overnight, right? We, we are talking about laying the foundation for, for work that's going to be two, five, ten. 15 years down the road here. And that's when we're really going to be seeing the manifestation of the change that we're all trying to bring to the food system. Sir, yes, sir. You're, you're speaking our language, man. Love it. That's why I really enjoy, you know, chopping it up with you, man, taking the time to really understand because as you mentioned, the opportunity that presents itself amidst the problem is amazing. And so what we say is the sky's the limit. You know, we just have to be conscientious enough to take a step back look at it from a 100,000 foot view, look at all the interrelated pieces and ensure there's mm -hmm. there's synchronicity across all those pieces. So that's one of the charges that we're trying to take by partnering with other folks that are doing the same thing. You know, learning a lot from you and connecting with you and the knowledge that your team brings to the table. Anything is possible. It is, it is. And we are, you know, of course, our core focus is designing and building, helping people you know, operate indoor farms, right? But we see ourselves as food system builders, right? This, this isn't just an indoor farming company. A lot of the projects that we're working on right now are connected to other pieces of the food system. They're going directly into distribution centers or they're two blocks from where that mass shooting was in Buffalo earlier this year that's connecting into a much larger food system. We're working with some brothers in Vegas right now who are working with the city of Las Vegas 
uh, in North Las Vegas, which is one of the most segregated areas of that state and has historically was, you know, an area where black folks were kept, right? And so we're working with them right now. They're working with the city of Las Vegas to also look at, uh, you know, used buildings from the city or, you know, unused space that the city has to transform into food infrastructure to create jobs, to create opportunity in our community. Because in, from my perspective, all of that stuff, Frederick, is low-hanging fruit, right? It's, it's, it's low-hanging fruit in that respect because it doesn't exist in the first place. Fantastic. Yes, sir. I agree 100%. I'm, I'm going to ask you one more question about uh, this particular area, and then we're going to look into the young Mr. George. Is that cool? <laughs> of course. Okay. The one question I wanted to ask before we talk about your journey is how can we stimulate young people to be interested in this area? Yeah, I think that's a good, a really good question. And I think starting to me with the education and the history of the importance of African-American people in agriculture, I think is one to me that is, is really important, right? I think, you know, as we talked about earlier, so much of what is connected to agriculture in the African-American community has a negative construct tied to it, right? And it generally leads back to slavery or it leads back to sharecropping. I mean, we need to, we need to recognize, right? We're one or two generations removed from family members being sharecroppers. Um, and, you know, one or two more generations removed from slavery. Uh, and so, you know, those wounds are still very fresh. And so, again, I think people need to understand the history, but then they also need to understand the importance of, I think, what can be created out of a new food system and agriculture and food pathways, right? I think we then have to talk about the economic opportunity, uh, the, the climate change opportunity, right? To me, the greening of our food system is one of the biggest opportunities to fight climate change. Well, we have a food system that doesn't exist yet. So it gives us an opportunity from the jump to build a green food system. Absolutely. Right? That leads back to our communities. That's an incredible opportunity. And these are things that just have to happen. Right, Frederick, these aren't these aren't ideas or concepts. This is factual. Like yeah. these things have to happen if sure. we want to survive as a humanity. Right. And so for me, um, I think having those types of conversations and, and you know, then letting people understand and know what's at stake um, if we continue to go down this pathway. Right. Um, so I, I think those are, are really critical steps to getting the youth involved. Um, in, in this conversation. And to me, there is a level of activism that is also tied to this, right? Whether you want to call it economic activism, food activism, food justice, uh, all of those things to me are, are tied to this. And that to me is also something um, that we should be using to inspire the, the youth and, and younger generations. And that was so eloquent and it, it really, really is confirmation on some of the things that our partners and I are doing here locally. One of the things we're looking at right now is tying this industry to an apprenticeship program so that young folks can go in and get paid work experience while they're learning how to actually do this from not just from producing the crop but everything you mentioned from the supply chain to uh the retail side the activism side the economic side all those things is what we're tying into an apprenticeship program uh for urban agriculture right now yeah, and so, I think one thing that could be really interesting as well, Frederick, right, is being able to build a visual chart 
so that people could see where those those opportunities exist, right? And really visualizing the supply chain, the value chain of the food system. And then it's like, you know, as, as we're bringing people into these apprenticeship programs, talk, being able to talk about, well, what pathway do you want to choose, right? There's indoor farming, there's food processing, there's value-added goods, you know, I mean, we haven't even really gotten into meat and butchery and all those areas, right, that also exist. So to me, it's it's really bringing that into full focus and letting people know where the opportunities are and where they exist. And, you know, we just kind of start going down the line from there and making a checklist and, and, you know, creating action plans to develop those parts of, of the food system. Ah, yes. Yes. You're in our head and we love <laughs> it. This is going to be so much fun. So well, much fun. And you know what, Frederick, what I will say too, man, I mean, and, and then I'll, I'll be quiet here, but, you know, I think for me, sometimes I often feel like, you know, I'm operating in a space that really doesn't exist yet because the way that I see this thing ending and the way that I see this food system being built is so different from what you hear every day in the mainstream of this industry, right? So sometimes it can be a little isolating because the work that we're do doing is so different. And the goals that and the outcomes that we're trying to reach through this technology are so different than what you see every day in this industry. But I'm okay with that, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're talking about doing things that have never existed before. And part of this journey of being an entrepreneur is being able to create your own path mm -hmm. and being confident in being able to do that. So yeah, man, that, that's also part of it. That's interesting. And I think that's a perfect segue into talking about the young Mr. George Carter. <laughs> yes. So would you mind taking a few minutes and, and tell us about that transitional period for you from high school into whatever you started after you graduated high school? What was that like for you? Yeah, man. So I was, you know, I was privileged, right? Because I had the opportunity to, to earn a full ride scholarship to the University of New Mexico and play football at the division one level. And so, um, you know, that for me was was my path and was my future right and and that was the only way that I saw myself actually going to college was through athletics um and I vividly remember sitting down with my now wife but she was my girlfriend at the time and I was maybe a junior in high school and you know she asked me what I was going to do after high school and it was like well if I don't get a scholarship to play football like I don't know I guess you know uh, I didn't really have any other examples right I guess I'll go work in the restaurant industry or you know my grandfather owned a dry cleaners or maybe I help him out or whatever and so I didn't really have a plan and I remember her vividly sit sitting there saying yeah no that doesn't that's not going to work like you, you're you're going to college football or not like that that's the path and that's the plan and it was like huh and she was like you know what's funny about you George like you're probably going to go on and get secondary degrees, right? Like there's just something about you. And, and funny enough, right, you know, in 2011, I was able to get my MBA. But, you know, for me, it was it was all about athletics. And I come from a state in New Mexico where, you know, uh, collegiate football players don't grow on trees, right? I mean, I was one of two people in the state of New Mexico my senior year who got a Division One scholarship, um, and so, you know, just let you know, um, how unique of an opportunity and experience that was. And so I, you know, then got to the university of New Mexico as a hometown boy, um, which was great, but I also had a lot of challenges to face there because of what I just said about the state of New Mexico, we're not really known for our athletic, our athletic prowess. And so there was even a lot of bias that I had to fight 
um, at the University of New Mexico as a local kid, because, you know, most people who who played at the University of New Mexico were kind of seen as charity scholarships, right? And they were just mm. scholarships that they gave out to the, to the local guys to make them feel good, but they never saw the light of day or they never stepped foot on the field. Um, and so I had to battle that my entire collegiate career, um, you know, and, and college football, you know, it's, it's a business now. And, uh, you know, those coaches get paid off of their recruits getting playing time and all those things. And so, again, fighting through some of those dynamics um, was difficult. But I think, you know, talking about resiliency, it taught me a lot about myself. I had to dig deep. You know, there were times where I was number one or number two on the depth chart. And then I got dro dro dropped all the way down to number four or five and had to work my way back up. And, and so much so that, um, you know, I was able to start my junior and senior year and, and never, never look back. But you know, that that four or five years of my life was was transformative for me. Um, and it just allowed me to really come into my own as a man um, and as a person, uh, no doubt. That's awesome. And, and let's face it, uh, collegiate football is something that you really can't enter unless you have built the confidence and the discipline to compete. 100%. So how did you get that? that confidence and that discipline to compete? You know, that's that's a great, that's a great question, Frederick. And I've got to say, I mean, I think a lot of that just begins with, you know, my upbringing and, and my family background, especially with my mother, right? Like she, you know, hard work is her, her middle name. And as long as I can remember, my mom worked two jobs and just that type of drive and work ethic. And it was nothing that was really ever talked about or discussed, right? But just watching that, um, I think that instills a certain level of work ethic and drive in you. Um, and then, you know, as an athlete, just having that inner drive to to compete and being able to outwork the person next to me. And I think I always had that from a very young age. I come from a family that, you know, has quite a bit of athletic prowess. My uncle Mike also played football at the University of New Mexico. Um, and so for me, it was just kind of part of my DNA. And I feel like, you know, when I would get out on the football field or it was the baseball field or even the track, um, you know, I think there were just these moments where you you're able to focus in on what's in front of you. Right. And being able to learn that discipline um, is just something to me that that happened over time naturally. Um, so, yeah. That's amazing. And I've, I've heard you mention uh, two pieces of your support system, your mom and your now wife. Was there anyone else that was important to your support system? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, it's mostly all strong women. Um, you know, my my grandmothers on both sides of my family, my mom's mother um, and then also my dad's mother uh, were incredible forces in my life. Um, always there for me. And, my, and and the one man that was as well was my, my grandfather. Um, you know, my, my mom's dad, he, he was an entrepreneur, had his own dry cleaning business. Um, you know, I, I lived in their household, most of my, um, kind of late childhood and high school and college years. And so just having that example, um, of a man who got up every morning at five 30 and was out of the house by six and, you know, worked all day and was home by six every evening. And we all would sit down and eat dinner. And that was, you know, the best, best time of my day. So I was, I was able to have, have that type of support from, you know, not only my grandparents, but also my mother that really just kept me focused. And I think kept me um, almost sheltered at times, right from from the rest of the world. Um, and, I, and I was one of the, you know, kind of young ones in our family who I was always around the older folks, right? I wouldn't necessarily say much, but I was always just kind of listening in to what my aunties and my uncles were saying, and just all of those things, um, and just being involved in those conversations. And so I do think 
that also helped with my maturation and, and allowed me to mature a bit uh, a bit sooner than maybe some of my peers because I was constantly around, you know, older folks. So, yeah, that support system is very important. What and good for you that you were able to observe and learn and internalize a lot of things that you were seeing and make that part of your own fabric. Not, yeah, a, not everybody does that. Well, and there was a lot of negative on the other side of that, right? I mean, my father struggled with drug addiction um, the vast majority of his life. He he passed away in 07. Um, and so he really was not a big part of, of the conversation. And that, that was difficult for me. Um, but, you know, I was able to find other people in the community around me that, that somewhat filled that void. And you can never fill the void of a parent. But, um, you know, I think I always kind of understood from a very young age what was right and what was wrong. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I had a lot of people that also came before me, um, that kind of showed me, you know, two paths, right. And, uh, the one to kind of peace and love and harmony and the one to self-destruction and uh, a lot of other things. Right. And, and I saw that and I, I very much wanted to go this direction. And I knew that from a young age. Um, so yeah. And, and athletics, right. Like that, that was always the constant thing for me that always just kind of kept me coming back and knowing that that was, that was always the goal. Um, and if I wanted to, to operate at that level, like I, I couldn't have those boundaries in, in my way. So. Thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned some of the challenges that you had uh, when you're at university of New Mexico, what was the toughest lesson that you had to learn in that period? Hmm. I think um, ne never quitting, right? Um, never quitting, I think, was was the biggest lesson that I learned there um, because there was a moment in time when I was, you know, I knew I was going to be graduating at the end of my, you know, technically my fourth year, my junior year football wise, but it would have been my senior year school wise you know, things hadn't worked out the way that I wanted them to just in terms of my playing time and, and, you know, just the exposure to college football that I wanted. And so, you know, I was going to walk away at the end of that season um, because I was just kind of done. I knew I was going to be getting my degree. I was ready to start my professional career. Um, and I vividly remember having a conversation with my mom and, and telling her that. And she was like, no, you're not. Like, no, no, you're not. After everything that you've been through and everything that you've gone through, like now is not the time. Um, and it was right before, uh, you know, the, the the fall camp going into my junior season. Um, and I think I was, again, kind of two or three on the depth chart, just was not happy with things. And, you know, it was kind of the old give it one more shot, son. Like just, you know, one, one more, one more, one more season and see see how it all shakes out. And, you know, lo and behold, by the end of that fall camp, I had moved up to a solid number one on that that uh, uh, depth chart and never, never looked back after that. Uh, and so that was a moment in time where I just had to I had to dig deep. But I, I will also say the second thing, too, you know, that was really critical. That was for me personally, but it was also I think anytime you work in a team environment and you're working with people from all over the country, right, that have different thoughts, have different beliefs, all of these different things, but you're able to put that aside for the one common goal, right, of, of winning a championship and building a bond and building a brotherhood. And that's the other piece that I will say, talking about support systems. I mean, those guys that I played college football with and went to war with every day are still some of my best friends in life right now, right, 10, 15 years later. And for a lot of those guys, I was able to then bring them into the corporate world and we all work together and 
we're able to share that bond. So that that type of brotherhood um, is also something special that that can't be taken from you. And you know, now seeing all of those young men become fathers and husbands and all of these different things, um, it's it's really an incredible an incredible journey, um, truly. And you mentioned something uh, very important. I just wanted to highlight there, and that was how shared vision kind of pushes some of those other factors down to noise so mm -hmm. you can make something happen and make something yep. and being able to work in an environment where you learn how to take that shared vision and it means so much that you want to be a part of the success and you don't want to let down the other folks around you mm -hmm. something that we need in our communities as well that shared vision that makes us want to commit to success as a community yep it's the great equalizer it's the great, great. equalizer yes, sir. right i mean and, and that's the thing and it's 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 got to make sense for everyone, right? And as we were talking about how do we get more people involved in this, this industry, I think we've got to find those things that kind of pull on everyone's heartstrings and, uh, you know, can inspire and motivate all of us to start creating some sort of change, right? So, yeah. So you mentioned uh, graduating from college and then a transition into what came next. What was that like for you? Very difficult. That was probably, I would say, the most difficult transitionary period uh, of my life to that point. Because, you know, so when I finished up, uh, finished up my, my senior season, um, I was able to actually start working on my MBA uh, going into my senior year. I had a bit of an accelerated schedule. So I'd started working on my MBA going into my senior football season. Finished up that fall, and then that spring started right into a corporate job. So I worked in staffing and recruiting, worked for a very large staffing, national uh, staffing and recruiting company, um, and just kind of fit right in because it was a sales environment. It was competitive. It was drive. It was worth work ethic. It was a team environment. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, like everything I had learned as an athlete carried over beautifully to what I did there. Um, but where I really struggled is I actually was continuing to go to school during, during that time to finish up my MBA. And I ended up failing out of that spring semester because the, again, the transition was just too much, right? I went from being a student athlete, you know, from being kind of physically tired, but still being able to go sit through class and, and get through it and do well to being a working student which meant I was working a nine to 10 hour day. And then I was having to go sit in class for three or four hours a night. And I was just done. Like I, I mentally and emotionally, I was spent from my day for my day job and then trying to transition and, and going into school. I couldn't do it. And, uh, you know, the University of Mexico was actually still paying for my schooling at the time. And I vividly remember being called into Coach Long's office, the head coach at the time. And he was like, George, what, what happened? What's going on? Like, you know, and it was just kind of an aha moment of, man, I, you know, I, I was overwhelmed. I put too much on myself. Right. Um, and yeah, I just, I didn't respect the transition and, and the time that I needed to really change and evolve into this new way of living that, that I was experiencing. So that was, was difficult, but, you know, again, from the transition into the working world, you know, I was really nervous about, not having worked in a corporate environment or not having worked in an office, but again, those skills that I had learned as an athlete, discipline, the work ethic, the drive, competition, being able to work under pressure, all of that stuff carried over. And so from that standpoint, 
I mean, prof professionally in that organization, you know, my career kind of was was on a on a high speed trajectory, um, you know, and that was an incredible experience. But it, you know, definitely shaped the early years of, of who I was as a professional. And I'm incredibly thankful of that. But like many people just got burnt out um, of the bureaucracy and the cycles that exist within corporate America. So um, had to make the transition away. <laughs> Now, and you're saying something that's that's uh, very important that we want the young folks to hear. And in both your transition from being a student athlete to being a working student, there's balance that must be achieved. And I don't see, or at least I haven't seen to date, where higher education institutions are teaching our young folks how to get that balance and how to maintain that balance as they're trying to make these cuts from yeah. level A to level B kind of thing. What could you, what advice would you share with uh, some of our young folks about being able to recognize that period and finding the balance to, you know, either stick with it or pivot or whatever they need to do? Yeah, that's a good question, Frederick. And I don't think most spaces, whether it's higher education, whether it's corporate America, uh, I don't think most spaces really give us the time to really figure out and find ourselves the way that we need to, I think, to be self-aware enough to understand what balance means to us, right? We're, we're always just constantly being told, if you're not grinding, you're not working. And I think that is a very, very flawed mindset um, that we've carried over into our daily lives. Um, constantly got to be busy doing something. We don't give ourselves time to relax or have downtime anymore. And I'll, I'll give you a really good example of that. Um, this past weekend, my wife and I uh, were in Phoenix for some friend's wedding. And, you know, this past Sunday, I had a free day. I mean, literally had nothing to do. Uh, my wife was off doing stuff for the wedding. My daughters were home here in New Mexico. And I, I didn't know what to do with myself, right? Like, I didn't know how to not be doing something and actually sit down and relax. And Long story short, I ended up spending, you know, four hours down by the pool just reading my book. And, and that was it for me. But it, it, it was it was difficult for me to find that time to just unplug and not have a cell phone in front of me or not, you know, have something that was stimulating me. Um, and I think we all need to do better at figuring out what that balance looks like. And, you know, a lot of that begins with self-reflection and you know, again, unfortunately, many of us don't get the time to self-reflect the way that we need to. And so part of it is being able to create those spaces and carve out that time so that you have time to process things. So you have time to recalibrate and understand what balance looks like, um, because it's going to be different for everyone. Mm -hmm. An important part of that is uh, those margins that you allocate have to be protected, whether it's the space that you have in your head, the space that you have physically, just recharging yourself. Those margins have to be protected at all costs because when they bleed into other areas, you, the whole system breaks down. It does, right? And if, if, we if take, you can't, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. I was say, if you, if, I mean, if you can't take care of yourself, right, how are you going to take care of anyone else mm -hmm. is, is the way that I look at it. And, and so many of us are constantly trying to take care of other people, but yet, we're not even solid in our foundation. And so what do you, what do you think that's going to do to everyone else? Right. And so you, as, much, as selfish as that sounds, it's, it's like you, you got to make sure that you're okay in order to then turn around and be able to give yourself to other people. Absolutely. And, and it's I, in our experience, when we work with people that 
are externally focused and they're more concerned about what that image of themselves look like and what people are thinking about them, then they're willing to sacrifice that ability to recharge in order to keep that image the mm -hmm. way that they think that they look to the public. Yep. But it's more about internalizing who you are and being confident and strong in that first. There it is. Everything else falls into place. And you yeah. can only be strong for someone else, like you mentioned, if you're strong for yourself. Right. Right. And so uh, thank you for sharing that. Really appreciate that advice. Now let's talk about, uh, you said that the corporate world, I'm going to paraphrase here and say that you found a new awareness about your, your satisfaction and your place in the corporate world. And can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, man. I mean, I think for me, Frederick, again, it was a very, my transition into the corporate world was very smooth in the sense that, you know, I found another tribe, right? I went from being in this very tight knit kind of culture of a football program to now being in this very tight knit, um, I don't want to say rigid corporate culture, but pretty rigid corporate culture, right? I mean, so much so that I couldn't even have facial hair when I first started. Like, that'll tell you a little bit about just how conservative that that organization is. Um, and was. And, you know, I think oftentimes, you know, companies, uh, their goal is to to hire an, an individual and turn them into who they want to be. Right. And that, that was actually one of the lines that I used to use in my interview. We love to hire people raw and then bring them into our organization and turn them into what we want them to be. Every mm -hmm. single thing about that, that comment is incorrect. Mm -hmm. yes. Right. There's nothing healthy about that. And what we should be doing in turn is bringing people into our organizations for the individuals that they are and giving them the tools that they need to continue to thrive as that individual, right? And, and that that's why they're here, not because I want to mold them into something that I want them to be. And it took me seven years to really understand that pressure, right? And butt up against that, that glass ceiling that we talk about in the corporate world where I started interviewing for director level jobs and I wasn't really getting tangible feedback about why I wasn't getting those jobs. It was, well, you know, you haven't had enough experience in a big market or, you know, you've worked in too small of a market. And it's like, well, these are all things that we, you guys could help fix from the corporate side. If those are problems with, with my skill set and my knowledge, then how can you guys help me fix those things? Right. But there was really nothing for me to grasp on. And I really struggled with that. And, you know, I also just got really tired of, you know, the director level folks, and it was it was constantly everyone else's who fault who was under them as to why things weren't happening, right? And I think you know this as well as I do, Frederick, right? You, you take on the personality of your leadership, right? But you also leave your leadership. That's why you leave organizations. And when you have high turnover, it shouldn't be the problem of the people down below. It should be the people up top, mm -hmm. right? And no one wanted to admit that within that organization. And that was also really frustrating to me. Um, and so, for me, again, man, I just, you know, started feeling like um, I was going to have to become a person that I didn't truly feel like I was in order to continue to move up in that organization. And I needed to go find somewhere where I could really thrive and be the person that that I wanted to be and was becoming um, within the walls of that organization. And unfortunately, I never found that. And so that's why I've ended up creating my own company, right? Um, and and creating my own lane because I just, it, it, it never... You know, that that path that I was hoping would open up or someone would just put in front of me never opened up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it was like 
you know, to use an old football analogy, it was like, you know, all I ever needed and I knew it was just a crack, right? I just needed a crease to be able to open that thing up. And that's what I got with, with Scout. And 17 months later, here we are, right? But I just needed that one, that one chance and I got it, you know, but my margins of error, right, are very, very thin. Um, and, and that's also the difficult part of, about being an entrepreneur and being an entrepreneur of color in that respect. Thank you for that, uh, laying that out for us, because you, you said several key points there. And I'm not going to add any color commentation or anything like that, man. Everything is <laughs> right on point. But what I will ask the listeners to do, especially if you're a leader, is to pause and rewind this section a little bit more and, and pay attention to what George is saying about the well-being of the people that work for you and your responsibility as a leader to stay in touch with that. Yeah. You don't have to own it. You just got to stay in touch with it. Got to. Right. I mean, that that's what we're here for. I mean, with with our employees, with our organizations, I mean, we we should be creating organizations where people can thrive. Right. And they can really come into their own and they can find themselves um, and not be turned into what we want them to be turned into. Uh, and so, again, just that's just in society in general. Right. H how can we be given more opportunities to find out what really matters to us, what we really love? Right. If I would have had someone who would have recognized my love and passion for plants when I was 10 years old and was able to foster that, I can guarantee you my life would look probably a little different. And I found it eventually, right? But it took a lot of self-discovery in order for me to get there. And that is, to me, if I would have had the, I don't want to say the right leaders because I had incredible people around me just looking for the right things, right? That, that could have pushed me into the right directions that could have potentially changed my career. Um, but again, you know, that's the journey of life, Frederick, right? And if we had all the answers up front, it wouldn't be any fun. <laughs> it wouldn't be any fun. Yes, I agree. And, and I'll submit to you too that, you know, the challenges that we have and experiences we have kind of shape who we are such that we're, we're always growing. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're self-aware, your ultimate destination, even if you have a, a, an idea of what it is, it may not look like what you envision it to be now when you get there. But all those experiences count towards that. that they do. They do. So, yeah. And that's 100%, man. I mean, I feel like everything that I've done professionally, personally, to this point in my life has prepared me for everything that I'm doing with Scout Strategy right now. Plain and simple, right? I mean, all of those, those meetings that I used to go through and all of those lunches that I used to go through and all those sales calls that I used to do, all of that stuff is now all coming together. Um, and is giving me the ability to do what I'm doing now at Scout Strategy. So, hundred percent, wonderful. So, so what's the most vivid lesson you've learned as an entrepreneur to date? Oh man, um, fail failure is a reality of it all, right? And it's it's how you respond to that failure that that truly defines who you are um, and gives you the strength to, uh, I think, continue on and, and continue to dig deep. And those those little moments in life, right, that you experience where you just kind of have to dust yourself off, uh, that's the daily life of, of an entrepreneur, right? I mean, 30 minutes before this call, I was damn near in tears. Uh, just because it's been one of those weeks, right? Where it's been, it's been everything and it feels like it's all just kind of weighing down on me. And so there's beauty in the freedom. 
that I get in having my own company and running my own business, but there's also a lot of stress that you have as, you know, being a business owner and a father and a husband and all of those other things. And so, um, yeah, man, I mean, just, just continuing to find that balance, right. And doing the things that feel right to you, I think are, are really important, um, as an entrepreneur for sure. And the confidence, um, that come with that. And, you know, the confidence that comes with believing in the things that you believe in and what you know to be true. Mm -hmm. That's, that's so wonderful. That's rich, man. That's rich. Thank you for sharing that as well. Uh, so what's next for Scout Strategy? Yeah, I mean, so we are in the midst of, of uh, you know, closing out our, our second year um, in operation. It's been an incredible journey thus far. Um, so we are, you know, right in the middle of, of closing some of uh, the largest deals that we've had on the table to date. Um, and we're also now working on a fundraise um, to continue to go out and grow the company so we can add some additional headcount and just extend our runway a bit. Um, but, you know, I think for us, Frederick, I mean, our main focus is continuing to, you know, work on groundbreaking projects that are um, continuing to challenge uh, the current status quo of what currently exists in our food system, um, but lays the foundation for building a new food system that leads back to to our community um, and our communities, right? And when I say that, I mean all marginalized people, um, not just those of, of the black and brown communities, but all marginalized people who have been kept on the sidelines. Um, because at the end of the day, we all need to eat um, and we all need access to healthy, nutrient-dense food. Um, and we've got solutions to be able to do that. And so now it's just building it um, and putting those pieces together. And so, yeah, man, as I've said, we just, we, we plan on continuing to be um, an important factor and catalyst in the building of a new food system. And I know that's a very broad answer, um, but for me, uh, it's, it's hard to actually articulate because I could see it and what that new food system looks like, but it, it's, you know, being able to describe that, that that's difficult, but, you know, that's why we do the work. Right. Um, because these things that we're talking about have never existed before. So how should how are we going to have an idea of what they look like? Um, but we just need to keep pushing and driving in the right direction um, and change changes. Change is going to happen, man. I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic about that. Um, and I always believe in people. Right. Regardless of all the ugly that exists in our world right now, I always believe in people. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's that's what's next. <laughs> I like that visualization, man. Do you mind if we extend that visualization a little bit? For sure. Okay. Let's let's say it's four years from now and you've achieved all the marks that you've set out to achieve. What do you have to let go of personally to, to get to where you want to go? Mm, man, that's a really good question. Um, what do I have to let go of? Yeah, I mean, I think some of my own internal fears, quite honestly, right? And um, the imposter syndrome that sometimes creeps up in these conversations when I find myself talking with executives who've been doing it for a long time or, you know, feeling like I don't necessarily belong in these conversations. And I think um, that for me has always been, you know, one of my biggest hindrances, right? It's, it begins with me, um, really, quite honestly. And, and being able to remove that 
and again, continuing to find more and more confidence in this, this vision um, and in my voice and what I believe to be true. Um, and in order to do that, right, a lot of these projects that we're working on right now that are going to be coming online over the next three to six months, they've got to start to see some success as well, right? We've got to be able to see and know that this thing is, is working, which I feel very confident that it is. But once, you know, we can actually get some farms built and these things are operational and our customers are seeing some success, that to me is also going, going to help just continue to add on to that confidence. But that really is, is it. That's the thing that I've got to let go of and, and knowing that I belong here. Thank you for sharing that. And please know that, you know, where Ebony Tree Council is concerned, man, whatever we can do to advocate for you guys or give you more emphasis on the voice that you want to put out there in front of the community. We're there, man. Just, just you know, let you. us know how we can support and engage on your behalf. Yeah. We're already in this space and it's going to take the whole village to get it done. So we are definitely there. Well, and I appreciate that as well, Frederick, because that's something that, you know, for me, I just have never had a lot of experience doing, right? Is just kind of telling the story and putting it out there and and getting really good at that is something that I also feel like uh, I've, I've got to I've got to figure out what that lane is, right? Because another thing that I've recognized on this journey is you've got to be able to identify what your superpowers are, right? And what I've I've realized about me, and this has just been years of kind of, you know, finally coming to this, this conclusion, but part of my superpower is my voice, right? And the vision and my, my ability to get up in front of people in arenas and, you know, on the radio and on television and do all these different things and bring truth to power right? And be able to speak and inspire people through the words, right? And so for me, it's how do I get myself in more situations where I can do this, where we can have more conversations like this and continue to broadcast this and, you know, bring more people into the fold that have been like, yo, I've been thinking about that. I just didn't know where to start. Or I've been thinking about doing that. I just thought I was the only one in our community who was thinking that or doing that, right? And so how do we start to bring these worlds together? Because that is the one thing that I will say is a benefit of this pandemic, right? Is it taught us, it taught us that there are no boundaries and there are no borders, right? And, and that's the reality. Um, and so if, if we can leverage that and, and get that energy, because I do think there's a collective energy, especially of people of color who want to be a part of this industry, we're working with them, right? And, and we're trying to bring this community of people together so that we have some strength in numbers. Um, so indeed, and, and I will say to you, sir, uh, whether you re recognize it or not, I follow you on social media and the things that you share as it relates to the industry and the commentary that you add to some of the things that you post are very insightful and they're highly educational and inspirational. So you're, you're on that path already, sir. Keep doing what you're doing. And again, you know, whatever we can do to get your bigger stage, man, we are there because what you're yes, doing, sir. what you're doing is critical. Okay, we're coming to the close now. And what we like to do with our guests is give them the option of picking their 15-year-old self or their 22-year-old self and just leave us with some parting advice, if you will. Trust yourself. Yes. Trust yourself. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple. There's a there, you get a gut feeling for a reason, right? And trust that. Trust yourself. That's that's it. <laughs> With that, ladies and gentlemen, we have had the pleasure of sitting down, Mr. George O'Carter, the third entrepreneur, innovator, pathmaker, husband, father, 
community activist and an awesome, awesome individual. Thank you, sir, for your time. I really appreciate connecting with you today, man, and looking yes, forward sir. to doing more in the future. Indeed, my friend. All right. All right, brother. We are back, beautiful people. We are back. Thank you, 2023, for coming in and giving us clarity for yes. change. Yes, indeed. Oh, my goodness. I am so excited about what we are going to be bringing to you all in 2023. Knowledge is power and it's green. So. Let's thank Mr. George L. Carter III. Absolutely, man. I appreciate you, brother. He gave so much information, but it was such a grassroots thing, simply feeding yourself right, taking ownership of the food that goes in your body, that runs through your community. Ownership of those things has crucial changes for us. I'm, I'm so excited. Anyway, anyway. Let's talk about some of the highlights, too, because he gave some. What I mean, were yours? Just in general, I mean, the kind, of, the kind of vibe that we had is the kind of interaction that makes people want to check their accountability and say, hey, what am I doing and how am I participating in this movement? Because yes. you need to be part of the movement of change for our communities. It's important that we all Amen. participate. Amen. And yeah. when he hit us with the food systems or the catalyst to change for yes. us, we understood. Mm -hmm. We understood. And you'll understand come June. Yes, yes. Uh, what else I appreciated about this brother? He said, failure is how you respond. How you respond to failure is going to determine your outcomes. That was a really powerful moment, too. Yes, yes. I, I appreciated that because our young folks need to know mm -hmm. failure is going to happen. But how you respond to it is what makes the difference. And just a general message that you know, perseverance breeds character you know, came through that in many different points. Yeah, It felt like giving up was the best option. Perseverance breeds character. Yes, I also appreciated him saying, identify your superpower. Mm -hmm. Use it. Use it. So, uh, again, the knowledge. So let's talk about the numbers. Let's talk about the numbers. Okay, now here's the thing with Mr. George L. Carter III. <laughs> he is uniquely him. Yes, indeed. There is not too many doing what he's doing, and I have searched. Uh, so we're going to give him numbers under controlled environmental engineer. Those salaries average are $58,433. But the other part of that is that he can be considered a precision farming coordinator or an agricultural engineer. He falls under so many categories. However, we're going to talk about those numbers that matter the most, where we fall in. And for the controlled environmental agricultural engineer, 
we only comprise 10.4% of that. However, however, we are the ones with food swamps and food deserts. Mm -hmm. This knowledge deployed in our community will shift. Yes, indeed. It will shift things. Um, so that's, an, that's a crucial number. But what we also found is that since 2013, there has been a decline in the numbers for us in this field. So we need to ramp that up because we need to get healthy so we can get to our generational wealth just a little bit quicker. And, and listen, it's important for us to be in control of our solutions because on the other end of the spectrum, this is a $300 billion business. Say that again. Right. Say and so before we let other people control how we get our food resources, let's do it ourselves. Amen to that. Amen to that. So so on that, we're going to close because there's nothing else to say. <laughs> there's nothing else to say. We need to handle our business mm -hmm. in the greenest of ways. Yes, indeed. And that's where we're headed. More to follow. Yes. And we would, again, thank you for listening. Yes. And thank Mr. George L. Carter III. There it is. For dropping his knowledge. Yes, indeed. Listen, learn, and connect as we continue to go deep, deep for, for the, the culture, culture in 2023. You have been listening to Off the Top, where Black excellence dwells. If you enjoyed this episode, please comment below, share with your friends and family, and come back for the next episode where we will continuously provide usable, tangible, life-shifting information.